0: So the situation is is very complicated because it's not only about corruption, it's also about organized crime. And I think that is something that we have to take in mind, that corruption is only the vehicle that they use to get impunity for their crimes.
1: Welcome to Kickback. What's the first thing that you think of when you hear the country Guatemala? Is it the migrant trails that made the news recently? Drug violence? Or since you are a corruption-savvy audience, maybe the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala? Or the so-called Guatemala Spring of 2016, in which people took it to the streets to protest for anti-corruption reforms? What you're about to hear is an interview between Matthew Stevenson and Judge Claudia Escobar, Who's a former magistrate of the court of appeals of guatemala the interview touches on all of the above and outlines the immense challenges that integrity reforms in guatemala and in central america more generally face on a personal level the interview provides true inspiration for integrity you will hear why claudia resigned from her prestigious position because she would not comply with corruption as a consequence She faced intimidation and eventually had to relocate. For any feedback on the episode, ideas for guests and questions for future ones, the best way to get in touch with us is via Twitter. That's at kickbackgap. We hope you enjoy the episode.
2: Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Judge Claudia Escobar. Uh, Judge Escobar was a magistrate judge on the Court of Appeals in Guatemala until October 2014, when she resigned her position due to circumstances that I'm sure we're going to discuss in a moment relating to corruption issues in the Guatemalan judiciary. Since then, She's been doing research and advocacy on issues related to anti-corruption, particularly fighting corruption in the judiciary. She's held fellowship positions at Harvard University, the National Endowment for Democracy, Georgetown University, and is now working as an independent consultant on issues related to anti-corruption and the judiciary more generally. So, uh, Judge Escobar, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast.
0: Thanks to you for inviting me and sharing, you know, my experience with with the fellows. Well, great. So I do want to start
2: our conversation with the circumstances that led to your resignation of your judicial position back in 2014, because my understanding is that much of your subsequent work on corruption, judicial integrity grows out of your personal experience dealing with some of the challenges you faced and some of the pressures that you faced while a judge in your home country. So... Could you please share with our listeners the story that led up to your resignation in 2014, as well as the aftermath of the decisions that you made at that point?
0: Yeah, sure, Matt. Well, I think that I have to start probably telling a little bit about the story of Guatemala, just as a background. You know, Guatemala is a country that went through a very long period of a civil war from the 1960s to the 1990s, to the late 1990s. So finally, the peace accords were signed. But there is, you know, uh, a legacy that came from from that period of the Civil War. And that legacy was a legacy of impunity, of um, civil insecurity, violence, also um, uh, inequity. So the country had a lot of struggles to build a real rule of law system. When I became a judge, I was, I always wanted to help the country have a real independence judiciary. And I knew it was a challenge, but I never imagined the level of corruption I was going to face inside the judiciary. So one of the biggest challenges is for the judges to be independent and not have the influence of the politicians. Being a judge in Guatemala is a challenge, and you have, let's say, two kind of judges. You have the judges that are appointed, and they are in, in the peace courts and in the first instant courts or in trial courts, and then you have the judges that are elected every five years. And those are the ones in the higher courts, in the courts of appeals and in the Supreme Court. And... I was, when I was appointed as a judge in first instance, I understood, you know, how the politicians really try to, to influence in the decisions in the judiciary. Because if you want to grow in your career and you want to to be a judge in, in the court of appeals, then it's very difficult because the ones that elect those judges are the, the politicians. The process is a little bit complex because there is a commission of appointment that is called Comisiones de Postulación, a postulation commission. And the commissions are represented by the deans of law school, the lawyers of the bar, also by judges from the judiciary. So this commission that is almost 30 to 35 people will make a list, a short list that will go to Congress and Congress will elect. So when I had to resign, I had a case in my court that was related to the vice president of the country, Roxana Baldetti, who later became known for all the corruption cases that she had. And the lawyer of the the vice president contacted me. He was uh, a former fellow from from law school. I hadn't seen him in years, and he sent me a message asking me to to meet with him that he knew I was in the list to be elected by Congress in the following days and that he wanted to talk to me. I didn't know by the time that he was the lawyer of the vice president. So when I agreed to meet, he told me that he was going to come with the head of the Congress who was also from the same political party that Roxana Valdetti and Otto Perez Molina. And then I start to worry because this was something very strange for me, you know, to have a meeting with um, a colleague and that he tells me that he's gonna come with a politician. When I agreed to meet, I decided to record the conversation because I was feeling very uncomfortable Uh, with this situation but I wanted to know you know what he had to talk to me about the election and at that moment I realized that they were pressuring me to have a resolution that will favor the vice president and the political party and I knew at that moment that it was a very complicated situation that I was going to have to take some difficult decisions and that was on, on a weekend. On Monday, the lawyer came to the court, and he started pressuring the other judges. In the Court of Appeals, there are three judges, and we knew, you know, this was a a situation not only difficult, but also we felt very insecure. Guatemala, as I told you before, is a country that is very violent, and politicians sometimes, you know can use all the power they have to harm you or harm your family. So I remember very clearly one of the other judges that told me, you know, we don't have a choice. We have to agree on what they are asking because we all have family. And when I said that I didn't want to sign the resolution in favor of the vice president, they told me, think about your kids, think about your family, about things that they can do. And I, of course, thought about my family and I thought that, you know, I want them to be in a country where they can rely on justice, and if we allowed the politicians to force us to grant a resolution that was not legal, we were really not defending the judicial system. So I decided to denounce what was happening, and at the same time, I resigned the position because a few two days later, I was elected by the Congress to be in the in the Court of Appeals again, and I believe that you know. The reason why they chose me was because they wanted to keep me quiet. They didn't want me to talk about what was happening in the court because I was really angry. I told the lawyer, what you're doing is is illegal, is immoral, and you you are not supposed to do that. You know, when you asked me to meet, you asked me to meet for another reason. You never told me that you were going to, to talk about a case that you were presenting in the court. So I think that a way for me not to talk was to elect me. And that's why I decided to resign. And that created a very difficult situation in the country because not only I resigned, but I also asked the constitutional court, which is a different court from the Supreme Court, to undo the process of election. That I knew, you know, I had all the proofs that the election had been... Uh, manipulated by the politicians and by other powerful groups at the time the constitutional court decided to suspend the process and didn't allow the supreme court to take power on the time that they had to they took a few days a few weeks to analyze the case and at the end they decided that the case was fine which was not fine you know because there were many different situations that had happened during the process that different organizations of human rights have denounced. And also the rapporteur of judicial independence have called for the process to be repeated. But the constitutional court decided that it was fine and the, the Supreme Court took power. A few months later, some of those judges that took power in the Supreme Court had to resign because they were involved in corruption cases. And also six months after I resigned, there were some cases that became public where the vice president of the country was involved. And that was the start of the kind of revolution in Guatemala, the peaceful revolution that Uh, forced the president to resign in September 2015. So it was like a year after I resigned. The whole government was forced to resign due to all the corruption cases that they were involved. So it's such a fascinating
2: story. And I should just say, I want to get into some of the issues in a moment, but I want to make sure I express my admiration for the courage that you showed in doing something that was not only a great professional risk, but as you emphasize, given Guatemala's history, a great personal risk and a great service to the country. And I know that you uh, and your family bore a significant cost. You had to relocate, you had to resign your position and so forth. So I think it's a great thing that you did, a sort of patriotic thing that you did on behalf of your your country. Um, I did want to ask you a little bit to reflect on what has happened in Guatemala generally, and maybe also with respect to the judiciary, since you did what you did. Because I recall very distinctly, uh, there were many articles written in the international press and the Western press around 2015, when the then president and vice president were under investigation, eventually had to resign, of what people were calling a Guatemalan spring, comparing it to the Arab spring, where things also actually did not end up going that well. uh, Springs were, were everywhere. There was a lot of Optimism that in Guatemala, a country where, as you say, there had been such a long history not only of violence, but but as you say, also of impunity and corruption, that things were really changing. But in the five years since then, in speaking to friends and acquaintances who know much more about Guatemala than I do, it seems like the optimism that was so strong at that moment in, in 2015 has really dissipated, both during the Administration of president Morales who who succeeded President Molina and whose term just ended i guess the the very beginning of this year now there's a new president uh, and all these other developments so can you reflect a little bit about since you did what you did uh, and since this very dramatic moment in, in two thousand and fifteen, how have things gone in Guatemala to what extent has there been real improvement um, to what extent has there been backsliding? How would you assess the progress of, of Guatemala specifically on Ah, uh, promoting integrity both in the judiciary and in the country more generally.
0: Well, I wish I could tell you that things have been better. But that is, you know, not not what had happened. As you said, in 2015, I think it was a period of hope. People were really expecting things to change, but there is an element that we had to take in account. During that period, in Guatemala, we had the help of an international organization that was uh, helping the... Public Attorney General Office, which is La Fiscalía, um, uh, El Ministerio Público, and that is the CICIG, the Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala. And during the time, with the help of the international community, the country was addressing the big cases of corruption, of grand corruption. So they were probably 40 to 50 different cases where you could see um, the involvement of people from every sector, From not only politicians, also judges, uh, the judges that had to, to resign due to corruption cases. Uh, you also had the involvement of the private sector, very powerful people involved in corruption. So all these people, that were facing trials decide to organize themselves and get the commission out of the country and they were able to do that last year in 2019 and the government of, of president morales was key to that because he was also being investigated for illegal financial in the campaign in the political campaign so that's what that is one of the of the main problems in the country how politicians finance their their political campaigns. And we can see that the biggest political parties have been involved in different cases, not only of corruption, but also of of drug dealing. So you have the government of Otto Perez Molina and Roxana Valdetti. Roxana Valdetti has already been asked to be extradited to the United States because she offered the territory of Guatemala to the drug cartels in Mexico. And then you have another very strong political leader whose political party is also called leader. And he's also detained here in the United States. He also is facing trials. And the third political party in the country also was detained in Miami and was sentenced for trying to to use his political campaign in favor of the drug cartels in Mexico. So the situation is is very complicated because it's not only about corruption, it's also about organized crime. And I think that is something that we have to take in mind, that corruption is only the vehicle that they use to get impunity for their crimes. All the people from different organizations that do illegal activities in the region use corruption for that. And I believe this is not only the problem of Guatemala, I think it's a problem of a region. It's the same problem in um, Honduras where you also ha- uh, have an international organization helping to address this problem with was um, backed up by the OAS, which was the MAXI, who at the same time, finished at the beginning of this year because the government didn't want the help of this organization anymore because it realized that it was doing, you know, investigations that they didn't want to address. So I think that the whole region of Central America is facing a lot of backlash in the fight against corruption. And it's very sad to see that the people that want to do good, you know, there's a lot of people that, that want to change these things, but they don't have the resources. And also what is going on is that some judges and prosecutors that have led this fight against corruption in the country are being threatened. And that is, is what is happening right now.
2: It seems like it's a very difficult problem because once the institutions of justice get corrupted, it seems like it's very hard to fight corruption anywhere else. I mean, there's, corruption is a problem in all sorts of places and it infects all sorts of different government agencies. But if you have institutions of justice that still have basic standards of integrity, institutions of justice, I mean, you have police and prosecutors and judges, courts and so forth, then it seems like there's at least some hope that you can get the problem under control if it shows up elsewhere. But once the institutions of justice are themselves captured or corrupted by politicians or organized crime groups or both. And it seems like it's such such a hard challenge. And I know this is one of the things that you've been working on since you left your judicial position. I know you've been thinking a lot about how to promote judicial integrity and judicial independence. And can you share with me and, and our listeners some of your thoughts about how to start to even begin to, to get a handle on, on such a fundamental problem?
0: Well, I think that one issue that is key to address these topics is the way in what the judges are elected or they are appointed. You know How do we choose the best people in the bench? And of course, there is not a perfect system to do that, but there are some international standards that had to be followed in, in different countries. And I think that's a problem all in, in Latin America, but especially when you have judges in the higher courts that have to change every five years that's not a way to have an independent judiciary, you know. Another issue that is key is the safety of these judges, especially the ones that will address criminal cases against powerful people. If you don't guarantee the safety of the, of the people that are going to um, issue important resolutions, they cannot be independent because it's not only their lives, it's also the life of, of their family that is uh, at risk in these countries. And we saw it in Italy in the 90s when, you know, they were fighting against the mafia, how many judges were killed because, you know, they took a stand. And the same thing happened in in Colombia when at the time of Pablo Escobar and the cartel of Medellin. And that is what is happening in the region of, of Central America right now. The few judges that decide, you know, to act honestly and with integrity, they face a lot of threats. And maybe going back to the situation of how judges are appointed, the judges in Guatemala, in the Supreme Court and in the courts of appeal, had to be elected in 2019 again. Because the election was in 2014, you are five years in office, and in 2019, another court had to take place. That didn't happen. Because, you know, during the process, also, a lot of situations uh, develop, and different organizations of human rights present uh, cases against the process. And in this case, the Supreme Court decided to suspend the process. In February this year, the Office of the Attorney General discovered that the people from prison, the ones that have been involved in corruption cases, were the ones that were controlling the list, the, the names that will go to Congress. So the Constitutional Court ordered in a ruling in May that the Congress had to take in account who were the people that had met with the criminals that are in prison and, you know, whose names were in those lists and that people could not be elected. So the Congress has decided not to obey the constitutional court. And they haven't elect the new court that had to be in place last year. So there is really a very deep uh, institutional crisis in the country right now. Uh, I want to pick up on what you just said in a moment, but can you say a little bit about the role of the international
2: community, for example, the United States and foreign pressure. I know that there's some ambivalence sometimes in the community about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for uh, powerful states to use their leverage, uh, where some, some will enthusiastically embrace the role of, for example, the international community generally, the United States in particular, putting pressure on countries like Guatemala to reform their justice systems or or take action against corruption and so forth. Others are understandably anxious when big powers, especially the United States, seem to be using their power to interfere in what seem like domestic political affairs of less powerful neighbors, particularly in the Latin American region. Can you talk maybe in the specific context of Guatemala on this issue, in what ways is international pressure helpful in what ways can it be counterproductive what should what if you could influence such things would you want the posture of countries like the United States to be with respect to these issues of judicial independence and integrity and anti-corruption
0: yeah this is a, a difficult topic you know especially when you are a judge because if you are a judge you really don't want people from other countries to intervene in your judiciary but you also have to recognize that Sometimes we need the help of other countries to build a strong institution. And I think this is the case of Guatemala. We really need the help of the international organizations here because what is a strike is the rule of law. And we are not fighting only about, you know, people that benefit from corruption, from different cases and bribery. This is really organized crime, an organized crime. Is international crime. When we think about, you know, the cases of Odebrecht, for example, this was an international corruption case. And when we think about, you know, not only drug dealers but all the kind of of international criminal organizations of any kind, they are doing whatever they want in our countries, in the in the countries that are, you know, small, don't have enough resources. So I think that the role that the international organizations can play here or the, the role of a, a country like the United States that has, you know, a lot of influence in what happens in our countries is, is key. And I believe that in the last month, the United States has has put some pressure, has, you know, asked the country to elect the judges, to do a process that will give um, confidence to the people that the judicial system is, is doing fine. But... Under the circumstances right now of the um, coronavirus, I think it's very difficult for the international organizations to address these topics. And the people in the country that used you know, to listen to what the United States suggests or ask them to do, right now they are not paying attention. I think that they are just doing whatever they want because they don't think that what is at risk for them is more important you know, they really need to control the the judicial institutions. And we're dealing here with organized crime that is involved in many different sectors in the country. Do
2: you think, just continuing this theme for a moment, do you think that back in 2018-2019, the international community and the United States in particular did enough to try to prevent the Morales administration from shutting down CICIG? Or do you feel like the international and U.S. support for CICIG was insufficient during that crucial period?
0: I think it was insufficient. I think that the government of the United States listened, you know, to all the lobby that Morales and the powerful sectors paid in the United States. They paid millions of dollars to make a lobby against CICIG. And that's what they, they believe, you know. So they really back up Morales and they allowed him to get rid of this successful effort that was in the country with SISIG. And even if SISIG made, you know, some mistakes or there were things that could be done better, I think that the role that the United States played at the time was not backing up uh, an organization that is really trying to build a stronger uh, judicial institutions, but they helped them to dismantle that. Is there any
2: possibility that CICIG or something like it could be reactivated at some point in the future or once it lapsed last year? Is that basically the end?
0: Well, I think that, you know, at this point, we really have to rethink how to address this problem. And I was telling you before, I don't think this is a problem of one country. I think it's a problem of a region. And if we have to think about doing something similar, I think we have to think about doing a regional effort of addressing the problem of corruption and and impunity. What
2: would that look like? Can you say a little bit more about what a region-wide effort to address this uh, problem would look like? Are you thinking principally of kind of mutual support or some kind of uh, a convention? Are you thinking about some sort of international institution, like an international court or an international prosecutor's office? Can you spell out a little bit more Uh, what you would envision as the appropriate region-wide response to what you correctly observe is a regional rather than an individual country-level problem?
0: Well, I think, you know, that Central America, we are very small countries, and we are very interrelated. We have very similar history. And I believe that uh, a regional prosecutor office will work fine. Also could be an international or a regional court. There is a regional Central American court, but this court hasn't been any successful. So I think that we have to rethink the role of these institutions. How can we really think about regional institutions or what could be the role of the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights? How also we have to address corruption and human rights because there's also some issues related to human rights when there is corruption in the country. How would you imagine one could go
2: about generating the necessary political pressure to make progress in this direction? Because one of the reasons, as you know as well as anybody, that this is such a difficult problem is something that you alluded to earlier. The people with the power to do anything about this problem often don't have the incentive to change the existing system. And the people who do have the incentive to change the existing system often lack the power to, to do so. So can you imagine? I'm just politically, I know it's in some sense it's an impossible question because it's an impossible problem. But but based on what you know about Guatemala and the Central American region generally, can you envision a way that you could get political momentum towards doing some of the things that you would like to do, despite the fact that the people in power often benefit from the impunity that they and their associates have under the existing system.
0: I think when you have a country that is becoming a failed state and we can say that, you know, I can say that about Guatemala when you have so many people getting out of the country because they cannot live there because the situation is just simply impossible due to the violence or to the lack of opportunities of any reasons, but you have now in the United States more people from Guatemala than you have from Cuba. So this is a country that is not working. And then I I really think that it's time to sit down and think what is happening in the country and how can we really make this work? And if we have institutions that are totally corrupt, if you know that the judges in the Supreme Court are protecting the criminals, because that is what is happening right now, then the neighbors countries have to do something. And I think that one way of doing it is imposing uh, sanctions to that country. Maybe I'm not talking about the sanctions you know that, that Cuba has, but other other types of sanctions. And I think that there is enough uh, proof, enough investigations that the United States has. Uh, who are the people that are really allowing this to happen? So when you say
2: sanctions, you're not, if I understand you correctly, you're not necessarily talking about sanctions against the country as a whole. You're talking about the kind of targeted individual sanctions that the United States, for example, has started to use increasingly under things like the Global Magnitsky Act, targeting individual people who have been involved in grand corruption or organized crime and denying them access to the U.S. financial system, the ability to travel to the United States, and so forth. That's what you have in mind?
0: Yeah, I think that that should be used. You know, I think that we have some some tools that have to be used and sometimes is not used in the right moment. So I believe, you know, that those things can be more effective if they are used opportunic. Interesting. Yeah. Let me,
2: also in the subject of the politics of anti-corruption, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about former President Morales' election back in, in 2016, because again, as an outsider, I'd, I've never been to Guatemala. I don't, I can't say I really understand the country. I only am a very distant observer. But what happened in 2015, 2016 troubles me so much because again, as we were discussing earlier in this conversation, in 2015, it seemed to be this moment of hope and optimism, the Guatemalan spring, people in the streets. It really looked like a kind of people power uprising that had the potential to change the system because it's clear that while corruption is widespread in Guatemala, ordinary Guatemalan citizens don't think that it's fine. They don't think, you know, sometimes there are these stereotypes that you see, especially in the United States or other Western countries that in parts of the global South, corruption is more culturally acceptable. But it's clear that this is not true at all. And so there was what seemed to be this moment of great popular energy, an uprising against the corrupt status quo And from my outsider's perspective, it looks like Jimmy Morales managed to capture it and redirect it. He ran as an anti-corruption candidate. He said his his campaign slogan was, not corrupt, not a thief. And it seemed apparent at the time and certainly afterwards that this was bogus, that he was not really an anti-corruption reformer, that he wasn't really committed to cleaning up the system. Are there lessons that we can learn from what happened in 2015, 2016 for the next time? There's one of these moments, there seems to be an upswelling of popular sentiment against corruption to prevent it from being kind of captured or redirected by a figure like Morales.
0: You know, I think that when Morales was elected, the first one who was surprised was him. He was not, you know, a very strong candidate. He had come you know, from lower, really. So he was not prepared. He had not, you know, the backup of, of a very strong group. He had not an idea of what he was going to do with the country. So even if he had at the beginning, you know, very good intentions, and it was true that he was not, you know, coming from any, any sector that was corrupt, very soon he got together with people that have used the system to do illegal things and these people convinced him. Six months after he was in in power, he was receiving checks from the army to double his his salary, and that was discovered by the press. That's just one example of the wrong things he did, you know. So I don't think he was a person with very strong ethics, values, or principles, and that's why, you know, he was not able to use all the the momentum that he had to change a country because he had at the beginning the backup of the population, and he decided to to take the other way. So I think that there are some some lessons to learn, but. Also, the system on how we elect politicians, I think, is wrong, and that is something that also needs to be reformed, and that's when we really need to think about, you know, international standards, what are the right ways to, to make democracy stronger? How can we allow the best people in, in public office, and how can we reform our uh, you know, not only the key institutions, but also a lot of legislation that needs to be reformed in order to have um, better countries in the region.
2: Can you say a little bit more about what your top priorities would be for those kinds of political and legislative reforms? I know it's a big and complicated topic, and you don't have to cover everything, but especially for those of us like me who don't really know that much about Guatemala, what would you say are the top, you know, one, two, or three things that need to be reformed if we're really going to tackle these concerns about integrity, uh, impunity, and so forth?
0: Well, one of the key norms that needs to be changed is the way in what uh, public officials, how do they come in office? In Central America in general, we don't have uh, a career in the public service. So the people that work in the public service are the ones that are close to the political parties, and every four years when there is new election, new people come to the institutions. and I think that's you know one thing that needs to change in general. Another thing of course, is, is the judiciary, and we need to create stronger judicial system not only in the courts but also in the prosecutors. And then we really need to think about the way in which the taxes, you know, are invested in the country. Because so
2: civil service reform, judicial reform, and fiscal reform are your top three priorities for Guatemala.
0: those will be keys.
2: Let me ask you, on the subject of judicial reform, um, one topic that maybe I'm particularly interested in just because I've had the opportunity to collaborate with some researchers on this subject is the creation of specialized anti-corruption institutions like specialized courts or specialized prosecutors' offices. And this came to mind as you were describing the problems of judicial corruption and the associated impunity in Guatemala, because it reminded me of things that I read about Indonesia, for example. And Indonesia's solution to this, adopted in the late 1990s after the transition to democracy, was to create a special anti-corruption court system uh, the Philippines had had a special anti-corruption court for a much longer period of time, and other countries around the world, um, including, for example, in Central and Eastern Europe, in some parts of Africa and elsewhere in Southeast Asia, have created these kinds of institutions. The The Ukrainian uh, specialized court, as you may know, is particularly interesting because, returning to our theme about international involvement, there's a special body of foreign experts that participates in the selection process and can exercise essentially a veto over the appointment of certain people to those courts. To my knowledge, and forgive me if I'm wrong about this, although in the Latin American, Central American region, CICIG and a few organizations based in CICIG have played a significant role, there hasn't been as much emphasis on creating these special anti-corruption court systems with judges appointed pursuant to a, a totally separate process. Is it your sense that that kind of institutional innovation would be a useful sort of thing to adopt in Guatemala or elsewhere in Central America? Or do you think that institutional solution is either not appropriate generally or not a good fit for this region?
0: I think it's, it's important. And I think it will, you know, make a big change if we have courts that are spe- specialized in corruption and judges that will, you know, understand the problem of corruption because this is not just a a criminal case. It's a case that has, you know, very complex scenarios and I think it will be important and it's not happening in the region. I think the region of Latin America is still lacking of a profound uh, judicial reform in many sense. And that could be something, something positive, you know, to try to implement corruption courts. And some countries are, are thinking about it, you know. For example, Ecuador had a project about creating a special courts for corruption that they haven't done it yet. But the the project is in the in Congress, being analyzed. Fascinating. Let me ask you again as from a total
2: outsider's perspective, it seemed to me that although Many Latin American democracies have all sorts of problems and challenges when it comes to fighting corruption. One thing that seems to be a little bit of a bright spot is the the independent media. Um, Now, I could be wrong about this. I'm not sure whether this is true in Guatemala or not, but it seems like compared to other regions of the world that face similar um, levels of corruption and organized crime and violence, um, there are a lot of very brave journalists who are willing to publish stories and do these exposés and so forth. Is, so I guess my first question is, is that perception accurate? Is your, is, do you get the sense that, at least in countries like Guatemala, there's a vigorous and reasonably independent and courageous press, or is that that wrong? And more generally, I guess my question is, what role has the media played? What role could the media play in being part of this fight against corruption and impunity
0: i think you're right i think that you know in different countries there are very brave journalists that do investigations and and they you know expose the levels of corruption that we have in the countries but we also have to take in account that they also suffer some retaliation you know from the people that they are are exposing. And you think about Mexico, you know, that's a country where many journalists have been, you know, harmed and sometimes killed. Also in in Colombia, in Guatemala too. So it's not an easy um, profession to to be in the country, you know, when you want to expose corruption. So they do it, but they also pay a, a high price for doing that. And of course, they can play a very interesting role, a very important role, exposing different cases of corruption. But if you don't have a strong judicial system and the courts are not independent, then you have a wall of impunity. Because it doesn't matter, you know, uh, all these investigations, it doesn't matter if you have a very strong uh, civil society that also will demand accountability. If the judiciary is not impartial and independent, All these cases will, you know, just lay there for years. You are talking, you know, about all what happened in Guatemala in 2015. But from all those cases that were presented, very few have been really um, been sanctioned right now. Mm -hmm. So they find a way to postpone that. And that is why it's very important the next election of the judges, because what they want to warrant, guarantee, is the impunity for all the cases that are being right now in in the courts, you know.
2: As you were saying before, as we were discussing, it all comes back to the institutions of justice. And once those are corrupted, all this other stuff that can be extremely helpful if you have an effective justice system ends up not making as much of a difference as, as you might think. So what I'm understanding you'd be suggesting.
0: Yes, that's what I, I believe, you know, that really judicial independence is the key to fight corruption. Let me
2: ask you, we're almost out of time and I, you've already been very generous and I don't, I don't want to um, keep you for too long, but I did want to ask you about the new administration because we were discussing Pref- President Morales's administration, but his term um, ended at the very beginning of this year. There's a new president, is it President, is it Giamatti? I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that name correctly.
0: Yeah, he's Jamate. Um,
2: Jamate, excuse me. President Jamate. I know essentially nothing about him. I gather that he has created or has proposed creating a new anti-corruption commission of some kind as a sort of replacement for CC. My impression just from reading what I can in the English language press is that many people are skeptical that he's going to make fighting corruption much of a priority for his administration. Um, but again, uh, given my ignorance about this, I would very much like to get your assessment to as someone who uh, is not only from Guatemala, but obviously is an expert on issues related to corruption, anti-corruption in, in that country. What's your assessment, you know, almost 10 months in, I guess, of the Jamate administration and what it has done with respect to fighting corruption?
0: Well, yes, I think that, you know, Yamate offered to create this uh, um, new institution. It's a national institution he created. He appointed somebody there. But I don't think that they have done anything yet, anything relevant at least. And right now with the situation of of COVID, it's very complicated in the country to work on issues that are, you know, different from, from this pandemic. So this is a situation that has has not allowed the president to do all what he wanted it to do, you know. He has been running for president for from 20 years. So in every pres- presidential campaign, he's been there. And that's what he has done in the last 20 years is trying to get to the president. In order to do that, I think that he has some nexus to people that are not very correct, let's say that, and he has to be, he will have to prove that he really wants to work for a better country if he wants to do that. And I think that the situation is, is very complicated in the country right now. You know, he promoted in Congress different legislation in order to help this uh, pandemic, but all the money is not going to the right places. So there is a lot of questions in what is he doing right now? you think, and again, I'm going to wrap up in just a second, but I just had a couple
2: more questions that I wanted to ask before we have to wrap up. I want to follow up on what you just said about the COVID-19 situation, but also the place of corruption in Guatemalan politics more generally. So again, my impression as an outsider is that in 2015, 2016, corruption, the fight against corruption was very high uh, on the priority list of most Guatemalan citizens and most Guatemalan voters. That if you'd asked, I think, I don't know if there was any actual polling done, but if you'd asked Guatemalan citizens back in 2015, 2016, to make a list of you know the three biggest problems facing the country, corruption would have been on most of those lists. Today, I actually don't have a very good sense of whether corruption is still a central concern of the population. I could see it. I could see maybe that it's been um, overtaken by concerns about the pandemic and the economic situation, the security situation. But given that corruption. In many ways, maybe worsening things like the economic situation, the pandemic response. I could also imagine that people are even more upset about the corruption in the country than they'd they'd been before. Is it your sense? I know you, you're not no longer living there, but I but again, I know you you follow the country and you understand what's going on. Is it your sense that corruption is still a high priority issue for let's say the average Guatemalan citizen or members of the Guatemalan elite, or does it seem like since 2015 that issue is kind of faded in in its political importance
0: i think it's still a very important issue and i think that the pandemic has you know uncovered how deep the corruption is in many different uh, aspects like for, for example the health system the health system doesn't work in the last 50 years they haven't built a new hospital because corruption you know and one of and one of of the most important <laughs> corrupt politicians is the one that has control all the health system. And he's the one who wants to appoint the new courts. So I think that corruption is still a very important issue. It's just that there are other issues that are, you know, emergency right now. But I think that that the people who cares to build a, a stronger country, they they are clear that is this, this is an issue. But I think that there is also a combination, you know, on what is happening in corruption and how the country is being controlled by the, by the mafia, you know, by organized crime, by international organized crime. And, and we can see that in, in the political sector is very clear. Many people that have even been sentenced here in the United States and are back in Guatemala are now representatives in the Congress. So the link between organized crime and corruption is something to be worried about. So the last question I want
2: to ask you um, concerns the work that you've done in the last five years since you resigned your position as magistrate judge in the Court of Appeals and have been really devoting your energies to thinking about these issues more broadly. And I guess what I want to ask you as a closing question for this conversation is what you've learned in that time. So again, you were in the trenches, you were doing the work up until this uh, very dramatic moment where you had to take a stand for integrity and resign your position. Since then, I know, because we've had the opportunity to talk a little bit about it, you've been researching and studying issues related to judicial, judicial independence and judicial integrity. Um, you've had various fellowship positions that have allowed you to work on that. You've done, I know you've done some writing in this area. And I'd be curious... What sorts of things do you feel like you've learned that maybe weren't obvious to you back in 2015 when you started this new phase of your career? What are some things that you've learned or insights that you've had based on your study of these issues that, again, might not have been obvious to initially, but you might want to share with our listeners as kind of important things that you've learned based on your analysis of this very hard problem?
0: I think that one of the things that I know now is that corruption is only the gasoline for impunity. And before this time, I thought that corruption was something that we could tackle by itself. But we need to understand the bigger picture. And also at the same time, we have to understand that what we're facing is international crime promoting corruption in our countries. And if we don't clear, have that clear, it's very difficult because we think that, let's say this, I think that we have to know our enemy, who our enemy is, and who is controlling behind the people that you see, what is behind that. I wanted to say something also in the positive way, and is that I have learned that you cannot work alone, you know, that you also need to join with other people that are working in these topics because it's very complex, and you need people with different backgrounds to understand the problem. And that that is also something that I have learned now that, you know, I have to to look at the problem from a different perspective.
2: That's also a, a great point, and actually a really nice point on which to end our conversation, because of course, the uh, the spirit of this podcast is all about sharing different perspectives and creating a sense of community and exchange among people who all in some ways are dealing with this very thorny problem of the fight against corruption, but do it from all sorts of different perspectives, different professional backgrounds, different national backgrounds and so forth. So uh, Judge Escobar, thank you so much uh, for sharing your time, for sharing your insights uh, and your expertise with me and with our listeners today.
0: You're welcome, Mav. Thank you very much for giving me the time to express my concerns you know, about these topics with, with the audience.
1: That's it. Another episode of Kickbacks in the Books. If you want to support our mission that Matthew describes towards the end of the interview by saying, the spirit of this podcast is all about sharing different perspectives and creating a sense of community of people who are all dealing with the problem of corruption, you can consider becoming a Patreon. You can do so via Patreon slash Kickback Podcast. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Anti Corruption Blog. The podcast is produced by Christopher Starke, Jonathan Gleitpass, Matthew Stevenson, and me, Niels Köbes. Bye for now.